So, welcome to another episode of the podcast where we talk about Rust and Rust-related things. What have you been up to this week? Uh, all sorts of stuff. Um, I uh, I got a little stuck on um, the styling problem in GUI that everyone's heard me talk about on previous podcasts. So this is a plug for previous podcast episodes. If you're curious what the heck that even means. Um, but, uh, as one does when, when you, when I get stuck, um, I, I pick up a, a side project. Um, and so I, in the last episode we discussed at the very end, how we, we were thinking maybe we should add a, uh, programming language to the list of things we do. That, that was totally <laughs> a joke. But, but, but as, as I did this past week, I, I started a new programming language. <laughs> All right. and I like all how right, it's just right. tell me, radio tell me. silence after that. <laughs> <laughs> tell me, what's the unique selling point, the USP of your programming language? Tell me. There are none. <laughs> I kind of no, regret I, asking. No, no, that I, I, no. It's it's uh, no. The 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 reality is is that uh, over the course of this podcast, people are going to find out that I like writing programming languages. There is something so cathartic about. Um, just writing down a basic like Lexer in this particular case, I don't even have one of those right now. It's, it's actually just a virtual machine in, uh, implementation, but um, like they're just, it's a pure algorithm problem. And I love solving those. Um, and so what happened was uh, I was hanging out on discord. I was getting frustrated with, uh, with kind of trying to figure out how I'm going to be applying styles to CSS. Uh, you know, my, my, my cross platform styling to CSS and how it's going to be doing efficiently. I'm thinking all these different ways of experimenting to benchmark to figure out if, you know, attaching on hover events to everything is going to cause too much slowdown, you know, that sort of thing, like all these things that could make different implementation paths be possible for how to actually apply style, uh, you know, changes as you hover over an element, um, you know, at the end of the day, nodes in the DOM have to have CSS applied to them, right? So anyways, I, I got got a little stuck there and um, was was chatting with people and someone brought up uh, Erlang um, in their virtual machine. I don't remember exactly why. Um, I think it had something to do with the Elixir programming language. And I realized that um, the last time that I had uh, written a, a, a programming language in Rust, uh, like I think it was last October, um, I had written one that was completely safe um, and uh, in the process of testing how fast some very arbitrary problems like Fibonacci recursive was, um, I found that uh, Erlang was really, 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 really fast, way faster than it ever d deserved to be. Um, and I never really investigated why. Um, the past few days, I've been uh, playing around with uh, creating a new mostly safe virtual machine in Rust inspired by the Beam uh, virtual machine because of that conversation I had with some friends the other night. Uh, it turns out there's some really interesting design concepts. Um, and I don't know if this is where, uh, you know, a, a hypothetical GUI language will will actually run from or whatever someday. Uh, it's just what was interesting to, to kind of distract me from my current problem and, uh, you know, kind of give me something interesting to, to work on. Um, so I'm kind of nearing the point where I, I think the, the proof of concept is there and I'll be switching back to GUI, but that, that's what I've been working on the past uh, few days. So, so uh, then I have to ask, what's your favorite part of writing programming languages or anything related to that space? I think it's just the, the feeling of joy you get when you finally click run on something and you realize that like all of the conversions that had to take place to get you from, you know, whatever you consider your source code to the point that whatever, you know, operation you were testing completed uh, success successfully. Like there's just something so satisfying about writing the unit test that, you know, I mean, in this particular case, the, the virtual machine supports multi, you know, multi-processing where you can spawn, um, you know, tasks and stuff in it and, and things. Um, and so that was a, a unique challenge to, to, to solve for this particular uh, iteration. And yeah, I think that, you know, when I first got the ability to spawn and receive messages back from the spawn task working like that was just i was so excited and the worst part is that it happened at like 9 p.m my time when none of my geeky friends are online so, so my wife had to listen to me try to tell her what i just done and it was really really not a good a good conversation so no i i was thinking about this I, I had this conversation with the wife yesterday i i said um i've been working on this thing 
for this two library for over a year now. And I I said, like, there's there's like there's no way I can show this to you where it's gonna make any sense. Cause she look at it and go, well, congratulations, you invented the eighties, right? That's like there's no <laughs> I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't like, oh, check out what I did. And and, and she she's looking at me and like, are you are you from the past? Right? There's no there's nothing I can do. So I feel your pain, right? Now, what I meant with my question though, a little bit, I just wanna just throw this in there, right? Because I, I'm 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 fishing a little bit because I like this space too, but I actually like to do this as a sort of a relaxing hobby, right? Now, I don't write programming languages for fun as a hobby, okay? But I like writing lexes and parsers just because they are always so nicely organized in Rust that you kind of exactly. end up with this match statement, right? Uh, well, I was going to say that uh, the the analogy for uh, uh, that I came up with for for describing this to the wife was um, how you, when when you're a server in a restaurant, you're taking orders from people, and you're not actually doing the cooking. You're asking other people to do the cooking, and so I, I told her that the the spawn operation is as, is as if the order you know basically wrote the ticket and sent it off to have the the meal produced and then the goal was that eventually uh someone will say order up and you know they'll you know she'll retrieve the 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 order and you know that's the equivalent of passing a message to a remote worker and getting it back from the worker as well and getting a response back from the worker and uh, she actually understood that that analogy but you know the 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 clearly the details of how much complicated stuff behind the scenes <laughs> needed to happen to make that work we're lost on her so um but yeah no i i uh, you know i think that's uh, i haven't done a lexer and a parser for this particular one because um I don't have an actual language right now. Right now, all I have is just virtual machine instructions because uh, really what I did was I started with the Beam virtual machine um, and thinking about how it worked and trying to translate it into... Um, I wasn't actually planning on making it be pretty much completely safe. Um, I was planning on embracing unsafe with this iteration. That's one of the things that I thought would distinguish it between um, the current virtual machine project that I thought was what I might be using to build a new language someday, um, Bud, uh, which I'll link to in the show notes, um, and this particular one. Uh, and so, yeah, there, there's like just uh, a lot of different ways of how things are encoded um, in the virtual machine where Bud was wrapping everything in an enum and an arc that would box the managed types from the Rust side. And having the arc inside of that value type, the, the core type that's being stored inside the virtual machine stack or whatever, um, meant that every time I overrode a value on the stack, the reference counting was potentially having to happen depending on what the actual value was. Cause not everything was a reference counted value, right? Um, integers weren't reference counted, but like um, if you gave it a rust type, it would box it into an arc so that, you know, you could pot copy it around between values on the stack really cheaply. Cause it's just a reference count, but that extra reference count overhead really adds up. And so I really wanted uh, to to follow Beam's um, uh, design here and make it so that it was actually garbage collected, which means that there's this fun challenge of how do you get a Rust type into the garbage collected environment in such a way that eventually I can release it um, properly because we want to make sure everything is cleaned up. So, um, so yeah, there's just a, a lot of interesting, fun challenges that uh, really piqued my interest in this go around. Um, so what makes it different than my existing one? Uh, I would say that it's because uh, it's not reference counted. Um, it's garbage collected. And then it also has uh, some, some multi-processing primitives in it. Um, specifically the, the idea that every, uh, everything that's running is I'm calling it a fiber instead of a process and in, in Erlang, they call them processes, but I don't like the idea of something that's running inside of a process to be called a process. <laughs> so no, so I've decided to call it a fiber, awkward, isn't it? Right. You're kind of yeah. you're spinning up a process, but you're not, you kind of, when, when you say start a process, you sort of think about starting a program, right? Not a, right. I, I'm leaning towards calling them a fiber instead or something like that. Um, you know, and, and so each fiber has its own independent, you know, uh, stack space and registers and, um, you know, it, I don't know. It just, it, it, it's been a very fun few days. I'm not sure even where I was going with that, uh, with that last thought. So I don't know if you have any more <laughs> questions about this or we can uh, chat a little bit about what you've been working on. 
writing lexers and parsers is fine. And, I'm, and I brought that up because someone asked me today, said, why aren't you using something like NOM or, 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 or whatever, right? Now, and and they, these, are, these are all fine projects, right? Nothing wrong with them. But I actually like doing this. And I feel like sometimes it's a little bit like someone's asking, like, why are you growing your own vegetables? And a full disclaimer, I do not grow my own vegetables. I can't grow anything. Anything I touch dies, right? That sounds very dramatic, okay? But anything vegetable-like that, that I try to, to keep alive, it, I can't even, like, I can't even keep mint going, right? It's just, this is not. And, <laughs> and, but, but like, there's, it's like getting the question, why are you growing your own vegetables where you can just buy them in the shop? But growing your own vegetables can be can be rather fun. I don't know why I'm using a vegetable metaphor talking about programming to a programming community. But I like <laughs> writing my I like writing my own lectures and parses, right? That's like a that's like a really nice thing to do, a really fun task to do, right? And and it's so um, it, it's kind of it, it, this thing that kind of grows out of it. And there are a few ways you can you can obviously approach this. But yeah, I always find the code always end up really well structured when you're writing uh, writing these things, right? And and for anyone anyone who's interested, uh, there is a book that you can read online for free called Crafting Interpreters. Right now, the book mm-hmm. syntax is using Java and C. But if you've been programming for a little while, you can probably quite easily translate this to your favorite language. I think that one is really good. Have you have you read that one? Have you seen that one? I haven't read it, but I have seen it slash heard of it. I think it's super good, right? So if like if you have no experience, I know you worked on like uh, compilers and such in the past, right? But I have not, and I did. Uh, the, the, my first implementation uh, was the Lox language to some degree. I didn't do the whole thing, but to some degree, because I, I had like this game idea I wanted to do where you had this programmable gun and it was like, all right, fancy thing. And it, it, it never, never, never became anything, but I did write a language and I had the, uh, the language running. I even had it like interacting with, with Godot, right? Uh, so you could sort of connect boxes in, in Godot and see like the language executing and, and it was all, it's the whole thing, right? But yeah, you yeah, know, I, th- I think that part is really fun, which is why, when someone asked me like, why, why not just use your, you know, use an existing one? I, I kind of like, I just feel like, but it's, it's fun to do, right? It's a little bit like, you know, I, I like growing vegetables. I don't know. I don't know why I keep talking about vegetables, but I, I, I like doing it, right? So that's why I asked you as well. Like, what's your favorite part? Because I was wondering if you also felt the same way, but I'm guessing maybe not, since you actually like to do the productive part of programming languages. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, so yes, enough about programming languages. I, um, I, I like talking about them, but I'm not really that good. Uh, but you asked me what I've been up to, and, and I am very, very excited. I am reaching the, uh, maybe I would call it the MVP, the minimum viable product, right? Which, which is a bit weird to talk about um, a framework or a library in that sense, right? Because it's not really a product, but I'm, I'm getting very close to having something that can actually run. I, I had something running a couple of weeks ago, but I wasn't satisfied with the performance. I think I can do better. And I have revamped the whole um, system for dealing with values between the templates and trying to persist the widgets in the tree instead of rebuilding it every time, which I'm hoping is going to give me a better performance. But not only that, also the facility to reach into the tree and manipulate a widget and have that state persist. Because it's quite frustrating if you do something to manipulate a widget and then you have to do it again because you rebuild the tree kind of thing, right? So so I'm very close to that, to the finish line. I don't know if this happens to you, but, you know, I kind of, I, I got to hold myself back a little bit because I just want to bang out the code and get it working. But I'm afraid that in doing so, I'm going to introduce some really bad code, right? Because it gets a little bit, it's a little bit sloppy. You kind of like... You kind of just throw everything at it, like yeah, we gotta we gotta reach the the finish line, right? But but I gotta hold myself back a little bit when when I'm doing this thing. Do you do you end up in that situation? There are so many unwraps in my in my code right now <laughs> on the on this particular language. Yes, like that's like to to me. There's like the I mean. I don't know if it's really the same structure that that I want to say here, but you know, there's the first ninety percent of a Rust project involves a lot of unwraps and no error handling and stuff. Then the second ninety percent of the project is where you actually go and handle the errors properly. Um, that that feels like what it happens to me sometimes. That's not always true. Sometimes it makes sense to build in the error handling from the start, but like I. I am very much a pragmatist because of how good of the refactoring experience is in Rust to happily write a bunch of bad code, knowing that I'll be able to refactor it. So I, I won't like 
I won't make really, really, really bad things, uh, you know, like horrible design decisions, but I'll uh, I'll sit there and be happy to do an unwrap temporarily, uh, knowing that I'll come back and get it later. I, I add a little to-do uh, yep. where everywhere where I have an unwrap. And it's not that, it's, it's not that you know, you add a, you sort of, you unwrap um, and then you kind of move on because when it, when it comes to unwrap, you're kind of omitting quite a big portion because you might not have decided how you're going to do error handling yet and, and you haven't decided mm-hmm. whether it should be an optional result maybe. So I think unwrap is really good when you're prototyping, but I, I do leave a, a, a little marker in the code. So when I get to the point where I'm sort of happy with something, then I can just search for all these uh, all these markers, all the to-dos, right, in the code yeah. and, and then go and resolve these, right? Um, but uh, you know, I, I actually am completely anti-unwrap, um, specifically unwrap with, you know, no, uh, not the unwrap ors, but like those are very useful. But the, uh, but specifically just unwrap as a base function. If I release code that actually has that in there, I feel that's a, a problem. Like a, when I say release, release to crates IO. Um, to me, if I truly expect that to not ever fail, it should be an expect instead of an unwrap. And Absolutely. there's a nice, helpful uh, Clippy lint for that. Well, what it, what Clippy notices is whether a function um, will panic um, without having a panic comment for the documentation, um, and that helps mostly catch the unwraps but i also just search my entire project for unwrap uh, uh open parenthesis and find any situations where i'm doing that and uh and switch them out for expects or insert the proper air handling so i have a lot of to-dos as well uh, uh you know i uh the to-do macro is incredible but sometimes you want code to actually uh run so i have a lot of to-do comments in addition to the to-do uh macro usages i i love like that was honestly one of the first things that i fell in love with with rust is having a to-do macro. I don't know how much of a how, how much you love it, but I I absolutely love being able to write to-do, knowing that when it panics, it gives me a special like you know not yet implemented, as opposed to you know, uh, oh what is this error? Did I did you know is this what I, is this something I expected or not? No, this is actually oh I just haven't done this yet. You know I never use to-do, and I get this question: like, Why don't you use unimplemented? Why don't you use to-do? I just bang out panic, but that's only like, <laughs> I, I never really use panic the panic i have not had a reason to use the panic macro specifically so for me it's a case of searching through the code base for to do and for panics right now i could mm-hmm. obviously just do this with the to do macro that would make sense but it just for some reason panic is just the first thing that comes to my mind and you see today you're writing code you're gonna panic right it's just like real life yeah. and so you so just throw it out there um and 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 um and do that, but yeah, no, it makes it makes perfect sense to use it. Do do you have like a little checklist that you go through when when you like when you're done with the code? You're like, okay, now we're gonna do documentation. Now we're gonna check all the like I don't know what whatever. Like, do you have like a um a, a documentation or or a checklist that you go not, through? Not exactly. I copy and paste um a kind of prelude that has uh the the. Uh, you know, attributes for the module or for the, to, for the crate that says like, you know, use Clippy pedantic and stuff like that. Um, and that particular couple of things that I include uh, gives me so many warnings that by the time I'm done, I almost certainly have solved all the problems that I'm looking to solve. Um, <laughs> that's not necessarily true. Um, I often uh, will pair that with uh, code coverage results as well. Um, it kind of depends on, how much like I really focused on making that library be testable. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, what about you? Do you actually have a, a checklist you follow when you do a release? I don't, but you know what I realized is we're going to be working on a project together. I'm, I'm going to put together a release checklist for myself. And then I'm going to, I'm going to share this with you and see if you want to add anything or remove anything and when the list is done, I'm going to check with some other prominent members of, of, of my community as well, who I respect a lot and, and, uh, and see what they think of, of this as well. Right. And, and when it's done, I think I'm just going to put this on my website. I'm sure it exists out there, but if, just in case, if it doesn't, right, if someone just wants a quick, you know, have I dealt with all the panics? Do I have any unwraps that is not in a unit test? Because there, of course, you can unwrap. And do I have any do I have any to do? Do I have I commented all my panics? Like you mentioned that, and I, and I completely forgot that. And as you said that, a little bit of shame crept into me, right? Because I like, oh yeah, you know what? I I've implemented indexing 
somewhere. And I don't think I've commented on the panic thing there. So I you know I gotta do a little bit of that, right? And and of course there's the clipper lens. I I just I don't have clipper enabled yet, right? It is not gonna yeah. happen. To I don't I don't on this particular project yet either, right? Like that's a, that's that's something that I usually do once I feel like the code has taken a, a good enough shape that it's probably close to its final form or at least in in its current iteration that i'm working on um because until then like you're doing a lot of busy work to satisfy clippy sometimes mm. and yeah the, the warnings are sometimes absolutely wonderful and totally legitimate but when i'm just trying to prototype something really quickly i don't really care if i should have used a match instead of a let else or something like that you know or mm. whatever um I, I, that's a bad example because it's supposed to go the opposite direction <laughs> <laughs> Clipper can can get on my nerves a little bit sometimes, right? But but in general, in 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 sort of lately, it's been really good, right? So I I think Clippy is obviously fantastic. I I rather have Clippy involved than not, right? Uh, A Mm -hmm. couple of false positives is 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 worth it, right? So so absolutely. And I don't always use Pedantic. We we don't necessarily need to use Pedantic on our on our shared project. Um, I like to use Pedantic on reusable libraries that I'm planning on other people using because to me those are more likely to get more eyes on them and the mm. more idiomatic the code can be um the better in my opinion yeah no absolutely i think it's i think it's that's very important right when you when you're writing code if you're writing code for yourself that you're never going to show or share with other people then do whatever but i think it's good to have these general guidelines in the community because if, if everyone writes code sort of the same way then well all code will look the same right and i think that's that's pretty good yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and today I was going to clean out the the fireplace, and um, so I went and got my 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 shop vac, right? Or rather, it's not a proper shop vac; it's a vacuum cleaner that can handle small particles, right? And 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 I set it up. I don't use this frequently, and and I set it up, and I go to hoover out the ashes from the fireplace, and and what I've done is I've connected the nozzle to the output, and I turn it on. And the whole living room sort of just exploded in a cloud of, of ashes. And my kids just stand there looking at me, shaking their head, walking away. And I was like, all right, then that is a bit of a clot. Then, um, so it was, it was, it's been, it's been a rather eventful day. Um, uh, today uh, with with the, oh, with the always head. always double check your inputs and your outputs <laughs> exactly see if this was rust you would just write the fireplace to not accept a hoover that is generic over the output <laughs> right that would it would be perfect i actually use the uh, you, you you're familiar i think i've talked about this before but are you familiar with the type state pattern right yes and uh, and if you, if you listen to this and you're not familiar with this thing just go and search for Rust type state. Uh, we'll put it in the show notes. Our, our listeners don't have to do hard work like searching. They can just look in the show notes. This is this is true. And, you know, I, I was I was being clever again. I was thinking like, but what if they listen to this before we got the show notes? But that's not going to happen. <laughs> that's only you and me. <laughs> it's only you. Well, okay. Well, Ecton, if you need to. All right. Now, but the, so the type state is is. Um, uh, I think it's mentioned in a very, in various blog posts and it's also mentioned in Rust Embedded. So when, when I sometimes get asked, like, why, why should I use Rust for embedded programming in, instead of C? My usual answer is, I don't know. I don't do embedded programming, but let me show you something that is very cool. And that is how you can have a, a pin being generic over output and input. And I think this is part of the embedded um, Rust book, right? Uh, that, that shows it. And you cannot read from an output pin and you can't write to an input pin because the functions aren't implemented. And, and so you catch this at compile time. And I think this is one of those really nice features of, of the type system, right? That I, that I thoroughly enjoy. Um, I don't even remember why I started talking about this, but yes, because I, I don't know, um, but, but I had, oh, go ahead. Ashes. that's why. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say I had a very similar, uh, I have a similar architectural thing that, uh, I haven't enforced at the, um, type level in rust yet um but i i know that i want to it's just a, a pending refactor in uh in the virtual machine uh because uh there are registers uh this is a register based uh, virtual machine and some registers i don't want developers to actually be able to write to but they should totally be able to read to the read from them um and so uh that's one of those situations where technically everywhere in all the operations they're just called register names but i want to split them into read only registers and you know read write registers and um 
so that you know when you're writing the Rust version, you just legitimately can't put in the value for you know the wrong the, the wrong type of register there when you're trying to to write to a register. Um, but when you're obviously interpreting bytecode, you need to handle the situation that something some invalid parameter could be there, right? So uh, it's just purely to help the people who are writing the Rust code not be able to shoot themselves in the foot by by putting the wrong things together. Yeah, it's a good feature. I like it, right? Uh, would you would you have like a, a register struct that is generic over T and then implement then? No, um, I, well, maybe. Actually, you know, I haven't really thought about the, the specifics of how that was going to work yet. Um, I actually just have, um, like at the end of the day, the virtual machine instructions are being, you know, dispatched via big, big match statement as probably most virtual machines do. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, it, you know, calls through to a function to do a load operation where, you know, it copies one value from, you know, a register or a literal to another register. Um, and that's the, the two field should probably just have a different, um, type right now, as opposed to just, uh, the register name, it should probably just be a read only register name or something like that. Um, and then the register enum probably should be made to, to be, you know, read only or read, write with two different content enums, or I've been using, um, an interesting strategy of having a lot of different types laying around. <laughs> what does that even mean? So re there, there is general purpose registers that have an R name. Um, and what that means is there's an, uh, you use the R name plus an index and that index can be uh, in this particular situation right now up to 1024. Cause that's just copying what Erlang has in terms of registers. It's a lot of registers by the way. Um, but uh, so, a lot <laughs> I was surprised. Um, but yeah, that's how much, uh, that's how big the Erlang, uh, register bank is. Um, but, uh, the I, I i um i don't necessarily think that uh genericizing what the register container is will help implement the function that does the match statement on register name and actually enforce it there. And that's why I feel like uh, at the end of the day, just having it encoded in the enum itself um, and making sure that I only accept the correct parameters will be enough because at the end of the day, all the registers really are is just, uh, you know, essentially U64 in my particular virtual machine. Um, and it doesn't really matter whether or not they're read and write because the virtual machine itself is going to have to update those registers. Um, it's just purely that the, um, you know, end users, the, the virtual machine code that's running shouldn't be able to touch those registers. I have done uh, maybe just a handful of virtual machines, right? But when I say a handful, I mean the number of hands I have, which is two, <laughs> I've done two virtual machines. So, uh, so, and one of them is for my latest project then, which is, is producing the, the expressions. This is absolutely overkill, but this is not where I was going with this project. And it would be more work to take it out and it is beneficial to have, but I think if you're writing um, a template language, you certainly don't need to have a virtual machine in there <laughs> that will execute instructions. You can probably go straight to uh, from parsing to whatever template expressions you have, right? But these these layers of of, of um, abstraction and indirection they they can help organize the code and solve problems as well, right? So it's obviously um, not a, a waste to have them, right? No, um, and there's a lot of interesting, like I mean. You obviously had some motivation for why you decided to to go the virtual machine route. What, like, what do you remember? What some of those motivations were? I was going to have the virtual machine be the runtime, so the virtual machine would be continuously executing bytecode. That was my initial thought, and I drifted very far away from this. So I ended up with the virtual machine executing the bytecode, producing the um, expressions instead. So, so now we're kind of translating instructions. It's not really bytecode at this point either, right? But we're, we're translating instructions into expressions. And then the expression tree is responsible for generating the nodes that will then translate to widgets in the view. Uh, this is all very, um, it's very, all very nested, right? And, uh, and so, so they would translate these things. So the virtual machine would really only run once, but the idea was that it was supposed to be running and you can update like a, a, um, a series of inputs for the virtual machine and to feed it new values and, and all that, right? But that mm -hmm. was, I, I've, I've since 
moved very far away from that concept. And instead, the virtual machine would just spit out expressions, which will then you know translate to nodes, right? So, so that was my original thought, which is very far from from where we are today, of course. Okay. Yeah, I, f- I feel like the 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 power of having a virtual machine really just comes from the kind of arbitrary power that you can put at that layer, right? Like um, by having literally anything possible that your virtual machine can do, be able to be done at that particular step that you're designing or whatever, uh, it may open up all sorts of fun possibilities. In my particular case, uh, you know, I've, my, my first, uh, my first job uh, that was full time um, was at a company that made something called Real Basic at the time, now known as Zojo. Um, Cross platform programming language. I've talked about it before. Ever since then, I mean, I read the Dragon book back then um, uh, to, to learn how to write a c- compiler. Um, you know, I, I had like the, the the manuals directly from IBM and uh, and Intel over all the different instruction sets because we targeted both PowerPC and and uh, x86 back in those days. Um, you know, it, it was just a fun time for me. And I don't know, I think, I think there's probably a truth and I'm kind of curious uh, if this is true for you. Um, were some of your earlier programming experiences, the projects that you remember like falling in love with, you know, uh, programming through, are those the same sorts of things that you find yourself having fun with today? Yeah. Hang on. Let me think back to that. I vaguely remember some of the projects I've done and there were more sort of nonsensical projects. I think I, I before before I did a lot of web development, right? Um, I did you know various projects in in Pascal and the likes. I think they were mostly nonsensical projects, and maybe the odd stab at making a game, but never really seeing it through. So I, I don't know, right? It's it's hard to say. I don't think we've even write the same kind of code these days. Um, but I do, I do remember distinctly being terrible when it comes to organizing my code, and this is one of those things you you can't really le- uh, really you 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 kind of have to learn this through experience. I think mm-hmm. how to structure your your project, right? And a virtual machine is a form of structure because you could obviously write all your code in the main function with a bunch of loops and if statements and match statements because it's Rust, right? But it would make for a terrible program to maintain. Right? It would be really difficult to to keep track of everything. And um, I think back in the day when when I was a young programmer, then I would I would not necessarily be that bad. But I would I would not really think about how I organized my code. And today, I, I think that brings me a little bit of joy when I kind of organize my code in such a way that it makes sense. It's a little bit like, you know, you, you move into a house and you throw all the furniture in the corner, but as you grow up and you realize that you can't live like that, you, you sort of have to, you have to put things in the right place. It's a little bit like that, you know, when it comes to organizing my code these days. And it makes me happy when I kind of find a good layout, when I see that, oh, now we can just do this because this just makes sense, right? This just fits together. And I don't think that's something that I could it uh, doesn't mean it can't be done, but I don't think that's something I could distill into transferable knowledge. I couldn't say to a novice programmer, this is how you should organize code, because that depends so very much on what they're making. Yeah, it really does, doesn't it? Um, yeah, no, I mean, and now thinking back more to, to the question that I posed to you, I, I think maybe I just got lucky that, you know, I was using this language, Real Basic, um, as a stepping stone for me, learning along the way uh, towards eventually understanding how pointers worked in C, surprisingly. Um, but uh, the it was kind of a nice little stepping stone for me, and um, I had the opportunity to work at the company that made the language, and that kind of peeled this, uh, you know, layer back for how everything actually worked. Right. And I think that that was a very formative thing for me. And that's why, uh, any time that I just feel like I need a creative experience and, uh, you know, it, it, back in the day, I wrote all these languages and interpreters and C and stuff. Um, you know, it really didn't matter what language I was writing, writing them in. It was just purely the, the cathartic experience of, of solving a specific problem, you know, with a very specific vision, which usually ended up being, you know, some, parser, lexer, you know, compiler, you know, variation uh, for me. Um, you know, the uh, getting distracted writing a database uh, has, it was a, was a, was something that I, I, it was a new novel experience for me. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> but, uh, you know, games is definitely what I tried to start programming with. Um, and so that was the other thing I was going to pull back to was that, yeah, I, I enjoy toying around with uh, at least thinking about game design. I don't necessarily get very far with my prototypes um, when I actually do prototype them, but I really love thinking about the game design. Um, and uh, and I also really love uh, writing programming languages. Like uh, Those are just kind of two things that I remember enjoying um, in my early development career, um, and, and I feel like they, they just kind of stuck with me all these years. That probably is one of those... Um uh, what would you call it? Like the the uh, the pinnacle of development is writing your own programming language, right? It's either uh, it's either something that's going to be very satisfying, or it's going to be something that is very uh, frustrating or, or or terrifying, maybe even. I think I do think that we tend to put a layer of magic on on various concepts, right? Like like you you wouldn't necessarily start an operating system from scratch today with the purpose of making it a mainstream operating system. Uh, like Linux or or Windows or or the other one, right? So if you 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 wouldn't really necessarily start. It's a very daunting task. Is where I'm where I'm going with, right? And I think writing a programming language can be that as well, because then you start thinking about type systems and built-ins, and and I think one of the things that people are obsessed with when it comes to these things, I I, I used to get in my early days of stream, I used to get this question quite frequently and, and I never knew how to answer this question is rust faster than C and and I'm just like in, in what metric is it faster <laughs> to write is it you can write C is only one character and it takes you longer it takes you four times as long to write rust okay so so it's really hard to to sort of specify these things but performance execution performance is one of those like um that, that you're going to think about writing a, a programming language, right? And and you yourself have a new virtual machine uh, compared to the old one. Have you compared performance? Uh, so, I mean, I, with the old one, I really only did one benchmark. It was really bad. Um, but again, this is all just because they were toy. <laughs> these were toys. They weren't meant to be the end all be all. And I was more just curious about, so uh, the Fibonacci um, uh, sequence is uh, one way to, to implement it is to implement it using recursive function calls, which is horribly, horribly, horribly inefficient. And no one should ever actually ship code that writes that you calculates Fibonacci this way. Um, but it's a really good, like, way to cause a bunch of operations to happen in a virtual machine. And when you think about it, um, the operations that are happening are you're calling a function. So that's a very common operation and you need to pass in. So you're, you're, the recursive Fibonacci is defined as um, the function is like if it takes one parameter for what number of the series you're, you're calculating. And if it's less than or equal to two, or actually if it's less than, yeah, less than or equal to two, you just return the numbers directly. Um, if it's greater then you call Fibonacci um, in minus one, plus Fibonacci n minus two. And that's the whole algorithm. So you can call Fibonacci now and it'll just recursively call. But by the time that you do like Fibonacci 35, because it's calling Fibonacci 34 plus 33, and that one's then in turn calling Fibonacci 33 plus 32, and so forth and so forth, and on and on and on, there are just thousands, like hundreds of thousands, I think, even at that level of function calls happening. So it's a good, very basic, uh, you know, benchmark um, of just understanding roughly how fast something is. Um, and Bud on my virtu on my uh, on my machine was able to execute Fibonacci 35 in about a second and a half. Um, Python the same implementation was about 2.1 seconds. Um, Rye was like. 11 seconds, if I remember right, something like this is all in October. So there's a blog post I'll link to that has some of these numbers in it. Um, and then uh, my new virtual machine is at about 800 milliseconds. And I don't remember what, um, Ooh, nice. what Erling was back in the day um, when I tested it. And I haven't actually uh, even tried it this time because uh, one of the benefits of Erling's virtual machine is it has tail calls and it has uh, registers, which if you write your functions in such a way that, you know, you can, uh, you know that you're not smashing those registers. Uh, you can like make this almost be instantaneous, <laughs> which is not what I've done here. 
um, I'm still doing a, a an apples to apples comparison. The the speed difference between Bud and what I have today is, as far as I can tell or or guess, is purely the the reference counting bit. Um, and and that's uh, I'm, I'm happy to have eliminated that, but I still haven't done the actual garbage collection phase yet. So um, there's a little bit of uh, not quite fair comparisons, but um, this particular algorithm isn't running into any memory constraints so that's not actually so um but yeah i i don't know if uh it's been a um a little bit since we chatted about like the the game itself um and um some of what we talked about last week about whether or not gui was a right choice uh you know versus using an existing another framework or whatever um, and by the way the, the several people that have reached out saying that they're they're excited or interested in what might be what, what, what might become of gui uh, thank you so much i really appreciate the, the those words of encouragement or interest at least um, um but uh one of the things that i need <laughs> to understand if we're going to use gui is uh, what what is your current vision of the game's user interface? I, I, it's been a while since we chatted about it, and I don't know how much you think about these things and how much your vision changes over time. Are you still mostly imagining a fairly basic MUD interface, or have you started thinking more of a traditional game interface? I, I think about this quite a lot, right? And I, and I imagine... Uh, quite a lot of these things, right? And and I I want sort of meander a little bit in my imagination. And something that comes to mind from time to time when it comes to sort of like the overview. Sometimes I try to simplify this, and I I don't know if you're familiar with the with <laughs> Wasteland One. <laughs> so, I haven't uh, ever played it, but I'm a, I'm a, a familiar with the series at least. There's not really any animations when you move between tiles, and then sometimes when I'm seeing some amazing pixel art game and, and, and I get, get that like f- full on inspiration, I sort of like, Oh wow. What if we did this? Right. What if we could do that? Obviously it becomes very complicated because the moment you have an amazingly stunningly visual um, game, that means that you have an amazing artist who is willing to follow your whims. Right. And, uh, and I don't <laughs> think we have that at our disposal just yet. Right. So I think, from my perspective, I'm still sort of in the camp of programmer art until we know, right? So I'm thinking, just just sort of throwing this out there, right? Some kind of tile map with some kind of player character that can move around the tile map and various um, labels for for stats, right? I, I I I don't know. It's really hard to to sort of describe this on a podcast. But- so. One of the things that we've talked about is like having, um, you know, messages of like what's happening in the room you're in or something, right? Like mm. that, like status, like a, like a, a, where in this interface do you see this? Do you envision, uh, like, obviously it's not going to be half the screen, but just pretend like I'm dividing up the screen in, in rough regions that like the left portion of the screen is this tile map and the right portion of the screen is like, uh, half split with you know the character stuff on the top and like messages on the bottom. Like, is that roughly the type of layout you're thinking about? Or are you thinking yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah. like so, the, the so, messages might be overlaid like some some um, uh, MMOs where there's like a chat window uh, that as you mouse over it it becomes opaque in the in the bottom left. Like that's how a bunch of MMOs work. Um, I, I don't know what 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 have you been like? What's your vision? Well, now sort of just chatting about this, I I would I would place the sort of the output window either at the bottom or on the right hand side. Um, the sort of and and, and mm-hmm. it would be rather prominent, right? It's quite important that you can you can read what is actually happening, right? Um, and 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 on top of this, one thing I want to add to this thing because we're talking about GUIs and and user interfaces. There is there is one thing that and, and I don't know if I'm going to shoot myself in the foot saying this or or, or take on hmm. more work than than we have to. But for some reason, uh, selecting, copying, and pasting text is very important because when you're going to do something like oh, a totally. login, you want to copy the the password from your password manager and all these things. That's so. so so those, I think you would be pleasantly surprised if you dusted off the old version of GUI and tried out one of the one of the f- like examples that actually has multiple inputs. The tab focus is really good. Like copy and paste just works out of the box. Like I, you, you're absolutely right. You need to not be able to tell that there's something different about what you're interacting mm. with than the normal interface. In my opinion, absolutely right. It should feel like you should at least be able to do that on all platforms so copy and paste text 
Uh, either it's either it's like you want to copy some something from the output log and send it to someone, or you yep. want to paste in your password or your your username. Yeah, there are so many games that you can't select text in the chat window. Um, you, the best you can do is just copy the entire row, including timestamps. Sometimes, <laughs> like, uh, yeah, yeah. No, I think uh, I think that's kind of important. I can see that for like a full screen 3D game with a lot going on that maybe they've omitted that part. But I think for a casual game and a game that's very, you know, interacting with the community, that being able to share text from your output log and such, is going to be more important. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and I absolutely, uh, I'm, 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 I, I don't like it when people share code with me and they do so via screenshots because it, like, I can't, <laughs> I can't do anything with this code yeah. right so being able to copy and paste something is is very important right and not just sharing screenshots right so so yeah so so that's a so that's very important to me i would say like in general uh, labels and and progress bars and copy and paste text like that's that's and and, 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 a, and a canvas to draw on that's like the basics of 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 what one would need and they're probably buttons yeah, as I, well right but i think that that chat area or message area, whatever you want to call it, um, is, is pretty, pretty important to me too. Um, like when we first started talking, we had, uh, even talked about the idea of making this so lo-fi that there was barely a tile map. Like mm-hmm. it was the most, like maybe even used, you know, characters, like, I mean, um, uh, ASCII type characters as the uh, pixel unit, right? Mm-hmm. Like that lo-fi, um, which also can be hi-fi in a different way, right? Because obviously, uh, by having a bunch of different characters, you can express some interesting state in very little amount of of you know screen real estate. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I I think that I would go f- as far as saying that like some some games allow you to like link to in-game items like i'm thinking like uh, uh diablo 3 path of exile those t- I, i'm sure you can link an item in diablo 4 but i honestly never tried you can this in path of exile and i was playing with with the uh, with a friend we were playing a little bit of this this thing and it's like oh yeah someone's linking this thing there and there and i was just looking at it i have no idea how this works but i'm a massive noob when it comes to path of exile well, yeah, but uh, my my main point was purely that, and I do, I don't disagree that like it's usually kind of hidden. Like you, you use like control or alt click on various things or whatever. Like that's how you link it. Like thanks guys, you know, just give me a an actual button I can click instead. <laughs> um, but you know, game UI is hard, uh, and you know I, you, I don't you fault are them kind for of that. Touching on rich text now as well, right? So you 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 definitely yeah you, you steering us into murky water. Are you prepared for this? Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, ultimately, that's that's kind of like. I know that if I wrote a DOM based game, adding an a tag for an anchor <laughs> and making it have an on hover on, on hover on, on hover, uh, that pops up, a, another div that overlays everything with the details of what you're hovering over. That's pretty straightforward, right? Like, I mean, positioning can be a little bit of a challenge, but mm. other than that, it's pretty straightforward, right? Um, I feel like I want that level of of fidelity in uh, what detail we can present to the user in our message box. We should uh, message area. We should have the ability to to mouse over like what about like you know a mention of a character name like an npc name or some boss or something like that mousing over gives you their flavor text or you know a little bit more history about them or whatever right like that sort of stuff just seems obvious to me but i also know that it's a lot of work right and so uh i i would rather put a lot of effort into making that area of the game really 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 good before some of the other areas to some extent because that's kind of where i feel the important aspects of the mud experience come from if that makes sense yeah yeah yeah, absolutely i mean and, and originally a mud was just text and and so of course yeah there, there's a great importance on on that right but uh, but yes yeah, so, so so on that note i, I think absolutely the the output log uh, is is very important and um features a, a big role in this thing I remember games like um, uh, was it uh, Mordor on on uh, Windows? Was it was it did it exist on Windows three eleven even? I don't, I don't know. 
Oh, I have no idea. No, that didn't. era of gaming was pretty pretty sparse for me because I had to figure stuff out on my own, and I only had a 386, and most of that time was spent in DOS. I remember dealing with, uh, I don't remember what, bat files? Is that what they were? Um, <laughs> and having to try to tweak different, like, interrupt and, you know, different, like, parameters in those bat files to make it run on your system properly. Like, I don't know, it was really weird. Uh, I yes, don't miss and, those days of gaming. Um, <laughs> it, but there, there, was a, there was a game, and I think I think it was called Mordor, and, and um, I, it was like a very tiny, it's like a dungeon crawler, first person, very, very tiny sort of window that you saw the actual dungeon. The rest was just lots of text, right? See if I can find a screenshot for the, um, for the show notes, right? Uh, but, but that was like, that was a fun game, right? Um, and, and that was like mostly text and, and obviously the, the mods were really fun as well, right? I don't know how well, uh, these interfaces have aged, but I do think that we can definitely do something that is good and playable. I'll go in this direction, and I and I agree with you that having some kind of um, interactive text is is text you, you where you can interact with the with the text itself, right? It's, it's going to be important, like link to as you said, link to certain yeah um, areas and such. Absolutely, but I also think that that player area is really important because every time that I think about the social aspect of hanging out in a game with people where you're not necessarily hanging out and actually playing games, you're just chatting or something like that. Right. Um, like that happened a lot for me when I, uh, played, uh, like Eve online, for example, I would often just be hanging out with these people that I were fr- was friends with. Right. You know, just, just chatting. Um, and I think that, you know, see your character and see other people's characters and have their character avatar be able to be, customized is just critical for making a game that's good to to have that sort of persistent you know yeah i'm gonna just log in see what people are up to and chat i may not actually do anything myself you know just hang out you know Uh, and that's the type of environment that i want our game to facilitate obviously there needs to be stuff for people to do in the game other than just hang out Um, otherwise there's not a reason for the the mass of people so to speak Uh, obviously if we get like 10 people i'll be happy but uh, you know the mass of people to play play this game in uh you know to, to to have a reason to log in so that when i do feel like i you know would like to hang out maybe not even play the game just hang out and see what people are up to that there are people actually doing stuff in the game right you still have to have a reason for people to do stuff, even if you still want there to be the social aspect too. Yeah, so. you, you do need that kind of interaction, and obviously the 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 the. To me, this is like twofold, right? There is the uh, the interaction that you talk about when you kind of just you just log in, you talk to the people you got to know over time, and you do a little bit. Of, and then there's the other one where you kind of you playing the game, you pottering about, and, and and you know executing tasks, right? So so there's yeah. like there's there's there's, there's two areas of playing the game, right? And I can see both of them being equally important, like the social aspect and the gameplay is, is uh, and, and together, obviously, it kind of gives you the ability to have this sort of, do I want to hang out or, or do I want to, do I want to be productive in the game? Or do I just want to hang out and chat for a bit kind of thing, right? And, and yeah, yeah. And, and that's not, that's not really easy in, in modern AAA games, right? You're going to have a boot up time and they're, they're like, say so you uh-huh. can't copy and paste in the, in the chat that well. And, it doesn't really. It doesn't really lend itself to to be social in that sense, right? Uh, I don't. No. I don't think. No, it's it's pretty rare these days. And I mean, frankly, even thinking back to Eve Online, I'm pretty sure you couldn't copy text in a, a piecemeal fashion. I'm pretty sure you had to copy entire chat log lines. Um, that may not be true anymore today. I haven't played Eve in eight nine years. I mean, it's a it's going strong. I, I think they just had their 25th anniversary or something like that. Um, 20th? I don't know. It's they've been. They've been a game for a very long time. I want us to have a game that lasts that long. Yeah, yeah that's, for it. that's pretty impressive. I want us to have a game with a user base that lasts that long. Oh, true. Uh, true. I guess if we run it for 20 years with all, with us being the only two players, that's probably not a very good accomplishment. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, you're right. You're right. Right. Okay. Well, you know what? That's all the time we had for this week. I want you to tune in next week where Acton does Fibonacci by hand from 35 and down. <laughs> Um, and thank you all for listening. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>